Welcome back, you guys. This is week six of Creative Confound Me for the New Testament. And this week, we are back in the Gospel of John. And you know how much I love the Gospel of John. It's it's harder. It's a deeper level of learning, but it's told in such a beautiful way that you're just going to eat it up. In fact, most of the stories you read in this week's sections are not found anywhere else. Because remember, when we talked about John 1, John's Gospel is, for me, I read it and see it as John's way of saying, I have seen things and I understand things that I can't let go. That's why I stay in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way, what I love of the way John teaches, or the way at least he captures Jesus' teaching, is he shows not just Jesus' words and how powerful they are to convert hearts. He also shows the actions of the Savior and how his actions are reflective of those gospel teachings. When he interacts with people like Nicodemus and the woman at the well, he is demonstrating his gospel for us. And it's so powerful to watch it play out. It inspires me to be a better teacher. It motivates me to be a better disciple. There is so much goodness in these chapters. You're also going to see the beginning of the miracles play out. Because remember, we're not going chronologically necessarily. You can't do a perfect harmony of things. So when you get into these chapters, you'll see things like the first miracle of the water turning to wine that we haven't read about anywhere else, even though we've studied some other miracles. So just kind of keep in mind that Time is fluid in the Gospels, and you have to sort of have a flexible approach, but you're going to see all of those things. But for me, the overarching message was one of, how do you apply your heart to understanding? I read this great talk this week. It was a, I think it was a CES devotional or something kind of like that. It's from Kim B. Clark. And he talked about how we, we get to this point where if we want to have powerful teaching moment, moments, we have to help people apply their hearts to understanding. Same thing that we read about in Mosiah. It's this idea of well, he, I put it in my margin. He said, gospel understanding is the critical link between gospel knowledge and effective righteous action. We all have a certain understanding, like in our scholarly mind of the gospel. But what we need to do is be able to translate that into action. We need to become something. He says the critical link between those is understanding, a depth of understanding that sinks into your heart. And what the Savior will teach Nicodemus and the woman at the well and his disciples and almost anyone else he encounters this week is that there is a that the Holy Ghost is an active player in that process. If we want to take our students or our kids from this understanding, this knowledge, and deepen it to something that will last, we need to use the Holy Ghost. The great thing is the Savior is going to teach you how to do it. You'll see him demonstrate it with all these different people that he encounters. And it's so rich. You guys, there's so much we can pull from it, not just from our own lives, but from the people we are trying to teach. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. You guys, there's so much goodness. You, you got to get started. Most scholars agree, in fact, it's written out in the verses that the first public miracle of the Savior happens in this wedding feast in Cana. And we don't know exactly know why the Savior is there and why his disciples are invited to attend. We don't exactly know why Mary seems to be concerned about the wine. Usually that's whoever the host is would be concerned about the wine. But for whatever reason, whether these are siblings of the Savior or just relations of some kind, I don't know why they're there. But what I think is really powerful is what happens in the moments before the miracle. Although I love the miracle and we'll learn some powerful things from it, I just thought there was a lovely interchange between the Savior and Mary in these first few verses. So it starts off telling you about the wedding and that there is this wedding feast that's happening and then there's a problem. And you see it in three. And the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. 
She's not asking a question. She's not really demanding anything of him. She's just putting it out there. There is no wine. And I started to wonder why she says it this way. And I don't have all the answers or even maybe any of the answers, but here's what kind of came to my mind. I think, I think there must have been a lot of conversations in the life of the Savior leading up to this point between he and Mary about when his ministry would begin, how it would begin. Sometimes I wonder if it was just the two of them to some degree, because most scholars think that Joseph has passed away by this point because he's not mentioned in any of these miracles. I imagine that Zacharias and Elizabeth have passed away since they were so much older than Mary was when she had Jesus. And, you know, the only one that maybe might understand is John the Baptist, and he's out preaching. I just wonder if there's this isolation between the two of them where they talked about how this needed to begin. And I wonder if it was really hard for Mary to choose to let it begin. <laughs> just from my mom heart, I, you know, the once he steps onto this road of performing public miracles, it ends in Calvary. That's the end of this road. Um, and I just think it must have been so hard for her. And I wonder if they had a lot of conversations where, you know, maybe she was like, I'm not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready. You know, and he being the caretaker that he is, especially if his, if Joseph had passed away, if he wanted to wait until she was ready. Again, this is not, this is just me and my thoughts, but I, I love it the way it plays out because she puts it out there almost, I think, as an invitation to say, okay, I think I'm ready. Um, there's no wine, but she doesn't ask him and she doesn't force it. She just almost opens a gateway to say, if you think it's the right time, Jesus, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. And that's how I read it. When you go into four, Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And of course, this sounds a little harsher in this context. When you read the JST, it's softer and kinder. What wilt thou have me do? It's, and woman, that phrase is not offensive. It's one he's going to use even when he's on the cross and trying to take care of Mary. But I think there is a bit of a, um, gosh, a formality to it. And I think it's because he recognizes what she's saying. I think he can feel where her heart is. And he's saying, are you sure? Are you ready? And she, in her beautiful Mary-like way, opens up the gateway. And she says, his mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. She knows his capabilities. She knows he's the son of God. She knows his power. She may have even seen it in small ways on her own in the intimacy of their home over the years. And now I feel like she's saying, okay, if he chooses this to be the day, it will be the day. And so he does. And this is when the miracle plays out. I just think you have to honor and respect their relationship and the the heart of her calling to be the mother of the son of God. There must have been a lot of these tiny decision-making moments that that we don't have the context for and we don't have the words for, but my mom heart feels for her. And I'm so grateful that she chose to say, okay, it's okay. It can, we can begin. Um, so the miracle plays out. And you probably know the story. He There's these pots that were for cleansing, for ritual cleansing. They're these big stone vases basically and they hold a ton of water like all in all there's probably about 100 to 150 gallons of water that he is changing over and he asks him to do something interesting he says fill the water pots to the brim that's in verse seven to me this is kind of like if you've ever seen a magician in a kind of magic show and they like roll up their sleeves all the way up and they step back from the table and they like move their fingers you know it's it's his way of saying like no trickery is happening here there is no magic here this is 
power. And so to me, that's what filled to the brim is like, I want you to see very clearly what happens. And so then he invites the servants to draw out from those vessels and take it to the governor of the feast, who would usually, I guess it was a relative of sorts, at least that's what one of the scholars I read said, that it was somebody who was kind of like the master of ceremonies of type person. And he, of course, consumes the wine and proclaims it to be the very best wine of that they had for the whole feast. Because feasts lasted days, sometimes even a full week. So they've had a lot of chances to taste and see things. And he's saying this is the very best that it is. There's a few things that I love about this. First, I have no idea when the water changed to wine. It doesn't say in the verses. I don't know if as soon as they filled up the pots, it changed. When they drew it out, when these servants drew it out and put it in the cup, did they see wine or did they see water? Did they have to carry the chalice over to the governor still thinking it was water? Like, we just don't know. The same way when we study the story of Naaman, we don't know if he was healed of his leprosy on the first dip, on the fifth dip, on the seventh dip. I don't know. But I love that in this story, it's it's the change that is powerful because what Jesus is teaching us is that he has power over time, that he can change things that need to age and that would normally in mortal limits take vast amounts of time and he can do it like that. That is a remarkable power that I actually feel like we get to see all the time. You know, have you ever seen a missionary go out and they seem so young and scrawny and, you know, wide-eyed when they leave and then they come back to your ward and you're like, didn't you just leave? And then they talk and you're just like amazed. Their countenance is different. The way they speak is different. The way they interact with you is different. They have dramatically changed in a very short window of time. That's something that should have taken decades for someone to accomplish, but because of the intensity of the work, they pull it off in two years or 18 months. God has power over time. And I just think the miracle of the water to wine is evidence of that, but it also opens up understanding for me so that when I worry about repenting of my sins and I think this is going to take too long or I'm too far gone, there's too much time that's needed to repair all the damage and all the relationships, I have to remember Jesus has power over time and he can condense miracles when they are needed. I I love that piece of this miracle. Now that the uh, miracle floodgates are open, Jesus's public ministry kicks off. In fact, it kicks off at Passover in Jerusalem, which is exactly where it will end. At least his mortal ministry will end at Passover in Jerusalem. And I think there's this really lovely symmetry to that that's powerful. But he begins at a really critical place. So in John, at least, it teaches that one of the first things he does is he go and he, he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. We see this again in the last week of his ministry. And there's debate among scholars whether this is, it just happened once or happened twice. But most of the prophets I read talked about it happening twice. So that's where I'm leaning. But I kind of love that part of the bookend, that a critical piece of his beginning of his ministry is setting the temple straight. And a critical piece of before he will leave this earth is setting the temple straight. And it's just, anyway, there's power in both. But when you go in the verses, you're going to see that the problem is with the money changers. Here's what's interesting to me. If you go to Temple Mount, you can see that what happened when Herod built this temple complex is he actually created a temple square of sorts. So if you go there, it used to be just Mount Moriah. It used to be a mountaintop where the temple was. And when he went to rebuild the temple, he built this wide square. 
And then in the center-ish of that square is the temple complex where only the Jews would be allowed to go. So on the outer square, like what we would call temple square, is called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where anybody could go and anybody could be close to the temple. And then you go in one section, you go up some stairs and in, and you get to the court of the women. And this is where only Jews could go. The women and the men could pass through this area, but this is where the women stayed. And then you can go up a few more steps and go in, and you're going to get further into where only the priests and the men could go. And then beyond that is the temple entrance, like the actual, what looks like the tabernacle of sorts. What's really interesting to me is Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He's not a Levite. So even though he is the great high priest, he cannot go into that inner court, <laughs> that inner area where only the priests could go. And I, I just kind of caught me off guard as I studied that this week, that, that there were limits to his connection there. What I love is that instead of fixating on that, he fixates on the experience of everyone else. So the court of the Gentiles is as close as a Gentile could get to coming to the temple. And he said, this is sacred ground because he is someone will, who will be continually trying to bring in the Gentiles to usher in this new phase where we don't create walls and barriers, we welcome in. And so I think that's part of the reason this area of money changing is so offensive to him because it's actually needed to happen. Like people would travel, pilgrims would come from all over and they, they wouldn't be able to carry sacrifices with them or wouldn't have access to sacrifices that were kosher. And so they would need to change. So they would change over with these money changers their money for an actual sacrifice and then take that in to be offered up at the temple. So it's a critical profession, I guess you could say, but it's where it's happening that he's offended. He is a fierce defender of his father's ground. In fact, I love that that's the way he says it. He says in 16, and he said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not mine father's house a house of merchandise. It's that it's his father's house that he's defensive. The Savior takes a lot of flack himself from a lot of different people over the course of his ministry, but he is a fierce defender of his father and his father's house, and he won't stand for it to be desecrated. So he says to them, it's not that the doves are evil. It's not even that you are evil. It's that you're doing something on holy ground. And I read a talk, I think I put it in the notes this week, where one of the prophets, I can't remember if it was Benson, he said basically that, that reverence is one of the first things to go when people are on the downward slope. They, they lose a respect and an, a reverence and an awe for the divine. And so we have to fiercely guard reverence. And I just think it's really interesting to see how he guards this so fiercely for the court of the Gentiles. Because remember, Christ's whole mission is that all can come into Christ. Everyone should feel like they can come close and have a sacred experience. I think it's the same reason we're so careful about creating areas around our temple, even if you can't come inside because you haven't done the things you need to do just yet. You can park in the parking lot. You can walk around. You can see. Um, you can participate in the holiness that is there without any price and without any trouble. And I think that's what he's trying to defend for these people here. He also has a run-in with, sounds like some Pharisees. If you go in the footnotes, you can learn a little bit more about this. But he basically, they're accusing him of you know, they're wondering what authority he has. You know, they talk about a sign, but basically what they're saying is, what authority do you have to push out these money changers? That's something that the Levites should have done. They're the ones that are supposed to defend the temple and keep it, you know, ritually correct. And his response is an interesting one. He basically says to them, if, well, you can read the verse. So if you go back, it says in 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
And then in 20, then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? They don't, when he says this, he's referring to his death and his resurrection. When the Pharisees hear it, or the Jews who are around, or the money changers, whoever it is that's listening, they don't hear. I think it's the same reason we have to have ears to hear. In fact, what John teaches us is that he had ears to hear. I just don't know how long it took for John to like make that connection or the other disciples, because this is what it says in, in 21, but he spake of the temple of his body when therefore he was risen from the dead. So three years from now, when he is resurrected, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The reason I like that so much is I think this is one of the meanings of the spirit can bring all things to our remembrance. Even if you missed something in the moment, if spiritually you, you just missed it, what the Savior promises, I, am, I have power to bring back memories. I have power to help you connect. Remember, it's that same idea of he has power over time. I've found this sometimes. Like there are times when I'm trying to think back on the ceiling that Jason and I experienced in Salt Lake Temple. And I can't remember the words very well. But this week as I was studying, I'm like, I should pray to have that memory come back to me. I should pray to know that for myself. I think he has power to bring things back to our remembrance when we intended to do something good with it. So take heart in that. If you didn't catch things the first go around, the disciples are right there with you. He can bring it back and he can help you understand why he taught you the way he did. I think it's the same way that many of us can look back on our trials after they're done or after they're, we're in a lull of them and say, oh, I get it. This is why. Because the Spirit brings all things to your remembrance. He helps you understand the why that you may have missed when the Savior was trying to teach you in your day-to-day -day life troubles. And I just think there's power in that. At the end of that chapter, you're going to see that there are some who will follow. He starts performing miracles at Passover. Remember, Jerusalem is crowded at Passover. There's a lot of people to see things. So a lot of people follow, but they're not, their hearts aren't in it. They're following the miracles, but not necessarily the man behind the miracles. And that's going to lead us to where we go next as we talk about Nicodemus. John 3 introduces us to a new character on the scene named Nicodemus. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. So that great high up in the Pharisee world is the Sanhedrin. It's this ruling body, and he's a member of that. But he is curious about Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been performing miracles in Jerusalem, and he may have even heard of the miracle in Cana, and he's curious. In fact, I see him as intent. You know, he is... There's a lot of bad rap that goes with Nicodemus, but I actually think he is, his heart's in the right place. He just has limited sight because of who he is. So you remember the Pharisees are those who take the gospel of the law of Moses very literally. Everything is very literal. In fact, they built what you would call fences around the law so that you can't even get close to breaking the law with the intent to be obedient, right? Their goal was to be obedient. So they created all these extras. Here's what I, okay, you're just going to have to roll with me on this, but you guys, when I read Nicodemus' story or a story about any Pharisee, I actually think Pharisees have a kind of spiritual autism. So you guys know that I have a son who's autistic. So this is where this comes from. As I was studying Nicodemus, I'm like, I think he's kind of like Jack. You know, my son Jack is awesome. He's 21 now. He's still on his service mission. He just sees the world's differently than I do because it's very literal. <laughs> like some of our like most funny family moments happen around Jack's inability to see 
figurative things. You know, so for example, one time I said to Jack, can you get me the book that I need? It's, it's in the middle of the couches. And Jack comes back and he's like, I can't find it. I'm like, no, it's in the middle of the couches. Can you look? And I go over to where he's looking, thinking I can help him. And you guys, he's like pulling apart. I mean, not like tearing apart, but like opening up all the couch cushions. You know, he's taking all of them off because in his brain, middle of the couch means the middle of the couch. You know, for me, I would, I meant between the two couches, like on the coffee table. For Jack, middle of the couches means like the middle. The same kind of thing happened. Jason asked him. He wasn't feeling great. He was upstairs. And so he sent uh, Jack to go get him a piece of bread. He's like, I just need a piece of bread to settle my stomach. Jack came back up and he had taken a piece of bread, like what I would call a piece of bread. And he tore it into pieces, kind of like you do with the sacrament bread and gave it to Jason. On and in his mind, that was perfectly obedient. That's what a piece of bread is, you know? And so I think when I read Nicodemus, I think that's who he is. I think he is someone who has been trained and rewarded for thinking very literally. And he doesn't see things the way Jesus does. And what I love is Jesus understands that about Nicodemus. He gets that he has those blinders and he's constantly trying to help him see. He's trying to help him get more out of this gospel that he loves. I believe Nicodemus loves God. I know he loves Jehovah. He is a devout Jew. He, of course, loves God, but he doesn't see God the way Jesus wants him to. So he's trying to open his vision a little bit. So you'll see the teaching play out. Nicodemus comes at night. A lot of people think that's because he was ashamed of the Savior. I don't think we know that. I mean, Nicodemus is someone who, he will stand up for the Savior when he's on trial. He's someone who will help Joseph of Arimathea to get the spices and things they need to take care of the body of Jesus. I don't think he ever became a disciple of Jesus. He certainly didn't become an apostle. He is someone who I think was an engaged listener. I think his heart wanted to know more and he just struggled to cross that literal barrier. And so Jesus is going to try and help him break that down. So it's very possible he came to him in the night because it's Jerusalem at Passover and it's crazy. And every time Jesus steps outside, people want miracles. So maybe he just came at night so he could have some quiet and some chance to talk. And he, what's interesting to me about how the Savior interacts with him is Nicodemus doesn't even really say what he came to ask, but the Savior who can perceive his heart knows. And so he immediately starts teaching him about why there is a need for baptism. So it makes me think that maybe Nicodemus's struggle is he wants to be a disciple or a follower of Christ. He just doesn't want to be baptized. You know, because maybe he feels like he's lived his whole life I mean, you can't get to his station without living decades of time studying scripture and honoring it. And, you know, like he spent a lot of time honoring and revering scripture. And maybe he doesn't get why he should need to be baptized. Or maybe he struggles with the idea that he even should be baptized because that would be on display for all of his fellow Pharisees to see. And maybe he just wants another route. Maybe he's saying, hoping that Jesus will open up another way to be his disciple. I don't know. This is just my theory as I'm reading through it. But Jesus teaches him about being born again. So he says in three, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is when Nicodemus responds with his literal, I don't understand. <laughs> like, how can you go back in the womb? That doesn't make, you know, it just sounds like Jack to me. So then he the Savior comes back at him and he softens and he says, it has to be of water and the Spirit, meaning it's what we studied in the Book of Mormon over and over again. This spiritual rebirth, this becoming something new, you know, a new creature, that's what the Savior is trying to teach him. He's saying it's so much bigger and better than what you, than that 
hemmed in gospel that you've been studying. Dig deeper, see bigger. And so he's trying to get him to see it. It just reminds me of when I was trying to teach, I taught Jack temple prep a couple times. And it is so hard to teach big abstract concepts like you study in the temple about spiritual things to someone who is so physical. Everything is mathematical almost. And so you can see the Savior trying to work around those same obstacles. So he softens and he says, don't marvel that I said this to you. Meaning, don't overthink this. Don't, don't, don't try and add this up in your head and get to the sum. Feel something. That's what I think he means when he gets to verse 8. So he says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. There's a great talk from, I put it in my, I put it in the notes this week. It's from Gordon Hinckley. And he talked about this verse and how what the Savior is talking about is testimony. The testimony is something that is hard to explain. In fact, you should go in the notes and get the full quote. But basically, I love the way he described it. He said, this thing we call testimony is the great strength of the church. It is the wellspring of faith and activity. It's difficult to explain. It's difficult to quantify. It's an elusive and mysterious thing. And yet it is as real and as powerful as any force on earth. That's what I think he's trying to help Nicodemus see. He's saying, stop trying to focus on my words. What do you feel? That spirit that you feel in this moment, that means something. I know you can't define it. I know you don't know where it came from. I know you don't know where it's going because we can't, we can't put mortal limits on an immortal Holy Ghost. You know, like you can't, you're not going to be able to define it perfectly. Even the prophet of God said it's a mysterious force. So he's saying like, don't worry about what you don't understand. What do you feel? It's like the wind. In fact, the, the, the word translates both ways. That same word that was used here can translate to spirit. You'll see that in the footnotes. So I think he's just saying like, shed, shed that literal mindset and think deeper. And Nicodemus tries. He just doesn't quite get it. And so you look and he says like, how can these things be? That's Nicodemus's response in nine. He's like, he's so used to thinking literally that even though I think he can feel the spirit working on him in this moment, he doesn't understand how it's possible. I also think, I wonder sometimes if Nicodemus is afraid. I only know that from my own personal experience that sometimes when you encounter something holy or an invitation to step up and do better, you're a little afraid to be seen. Because as soon as Nicodemus believes, like really believes and applies his heart to understanding, all his whole lifetime is in shambles. You know, like everything he's taught and understood will have to be rewritten in his head. Everything he, you know, there may have been times when he's, you know, he's in the Sanhedrin. So he may have had times where he judged people based on the laws of Moses and all those extra laws that were unfair. And right now, if he believes, might even seem cruel. And I wonder if all of that is like piling up on him, if he just feels the weight of it. The reason I wonder that is because of where the Savior goes next. So if if Nicodemus is afraid and paralyzed in this moment of, if I pull out this Jenga block, uh, everything will topple. And so the Savior tries to help him understand. And so he says like, oh, you know, you're a teacher in Israel. You should know this. You can understand. So he talks to him, he's like, if you can't understand earthly things, you're going to struggle with heavenly things. Go bigger. That's in 12. And then in 13, he talks about himself. In order to help Nicodemus in this moment, not panic under the weight of what might need to change. He cushions him with the prophets. In fact, I see this like this Oreo of, <laughs> because 
I think this is what you, like, I, I remember in a marketing class, they were talking about when you hear a song on the radio, if they're going to play a new song on the radio, they often will cushion it with a song that's super familiar on this end and one that's super familiar, like you'll sing along right after it so that you won't flip the radio station just because something new is on. And you almost see that happening with Jesus where he talks about Moses. Nicodemus loves Moses. All Pharisees love Moses. They understand Moses. They get Moses. And so he's like, I'm like Moses. Let me help you understand. Remember when Moses held up that serpent? What happened? What did the people have to do? They had to look up to be saved. That's the same thing. I am going to be held up so that you can look to me and live. So he he cushions him with Moses. He'll do the same thing in a few more verses on the other end. But in the middle is the creamy goodness of the new gospel. This is that sweet Oreo center that is new, but so good. And the Savior wants him to understand it. So he goes slow. This is 15. That whosoever believeth him in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a whole plan of salvation in one verse, you guys. That's what Elder McConkie said. It's, he's teaching him something bigger. It's the fulfillment of everything that Nicodemus has studied all his life, but it's bigger and richer and fuller, and the Spirit is working on his heart. And then it goes one step further in 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I think if Nicodemus is in that point of paralyzed fear of, if I pull out this block, everything falls. What the world's, what the Savior is trying to say to him is, I know how you're feeling. That's exactly why I came. I know in your mind, you think everything will crumble. But if you lean on me, that tower will get rebuilt and it will be better and stronger than it's ever been. That's his promise. He's like, don't focus on the tumbling that will have to happen. That's the natural man part of you. Just let that go and trust that with my help, we can rebuild the tower with those same fundamental blocks and it will be bigger and bolder and real. And he's just like right at the brink, you know, like you can just feel it. And so he teaches him about his mindset as his savior, that he didn't come to condemn, and that you have to believe in the light that is right in front of you. Those are the next few verses. I love what it says in 20, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Remember, if you if you pull away from God, it's because you're afraid of what you've built crumbling. At least in Nicodemus's world, I imagine he's afraid of his whole life and his whole purpose to his life crumbling. But this is where you see the power 21, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. To, to be wrought, you know, think of like wrought iron. Wrought means to be twisted and molded and shaped. So he's saying, let that whole Jenga tower fall. <laughs> like, let it go. I know that's a terrifying thing. I will never condemn you for all of those blocks I see in that pile. In fact, I'm going to help you build something new. But it's critical that you do that's what I love about 21. He says, but he that, he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest. Meaning you have to, when you come boldly to the throne of grace, what you're saying is, I know I'm a mess. I know I, I need help. Please help me. And the promise is if you come with humility and a willingness to do truth, he will help you. He'll show you how to rebuild your life one block at a time, and it will be a magnificent structure that you never could have achieved otherwise. But he's not going to force Nicodemus to do it. He simply invites. In fact, I think it's really interesting that there is no verse 
after this. Like, I don't know how Nicodemus takes this. I don't know what happens to the Savior. My experience, even just with the YSAs, tells me that there must be a moment of heartbreak in this because it doesn't seem like Nicodemus follows, at least not here. And I've helped, I've felt that where you feel the spirit so strong in class and somebody new came to class and you're like, they're getting it and they're going to, they're going to be back next week and they're going to be so excited to learn more. And then you never see them again. And you're just like, <laughs> but I just think you feel that with your kids too. You know, like you bear such fervent testimony to your kids and then sometimes they just don't respond or they don't come back or they don't ask more questions and you just ache inside. I think there has to be those moments for the savior but he knows he accomplished what he needed to accomplish. He taught Nicodemus. He taught him in his way. He taught him with the sandwich of, I'm going to talk to you about the prophets here, and I'm going to talk to you about the prophets here. He says further in the verses that he's like, you've been learning this from the prophets all along. And he taught them the goodness in the middle. And now Nicodemus has to choose if he's going to act, if he's going to lean into the light, if he's going to take this opportunity to, to let the understanding sink into his heart or not. And so the Savior, doing what he needed to do now, moves forward. When Lehi's kids in his dream of the tree of life don't come rushing to the tree, like Laman and Lemuel stay far off. He doesn't run to them. He stays by the tree and he continues to demonstrate its goodness, hoping that they will come, continually looking out for them and hoping that they will come. I think that's probably what happens with Nicodemus. I don't think the Savior ever took his eyes off Nicodemus. I think he always taught and hoped. Um, but I, I don't know how that played out. What I do love is that the Savior continues to show us the goodness of the fruit. So when you go a little in the next few verses of this chapter in John, you see that he's baptizing. He doesn't, he doesn't crumble under the sadness of this opportunity for Nicodemus to turn. He teaches somebody else. He's, he continues in his work to give every person an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. So he goes and he baptizes. And this runs into a little dilemma because the followers of John see Jesus baptizing and worry for John. And it's really interesting because this is where you get to hear John's testimony. You're not going to hear much more from John. He's going to get thrown in prison and then we get very little from John. But in this pivotal moment, he teaches his disciples what he has already taught them before, but maybe they didn't understand. So in the way John, the, the author of the book, writes it is a powerful witness of John the Baptist's testimony. So he says to them, don't worry so much. You know, his disciples are worried that he's getting eclipsed by Jesus Christ. And John basically says, that's my whole job. <laughs> my, my whole job was to be a forerunner. So in 28, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am that sent before him. His job was to prepare the way. And he did his job. Here's what I love in 29. He doesn't talk about how sad it is for him to decrease and the Savior to increase. So if you look at 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that can sound almost heartbreaking a little bit. You know, like you get it. You understand where his testimony is. And he, of course, this has to happen where people have to begin to follow the Savior. But he's not heartbroken. In fact, what he says in 29 is his joy is fulfilled. I love it. He compares it to a bridegroom. So the bridegroom's job, kind of like the best man, their job was to help facilitate between the bride's family and the groom's family since they couldn't, you know, the bride and groom couldn't be close together very often. So the bridegroom or the best man's job was to help facilitate and then to rejoice when all that preparatory work is fulfilled on the wedding day. And he's basically saying to his disciples, this is the wedding day. This is the day where all that work that I did to help this union happen of Jesus Christ and his followers can now occur. And because it is occurring and people are following Jesus, his joy is fulfilled. I, I love the phrase. It's at the very end of 29. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. 
He is not sad to decrease because he knows how he stands with God. He knows that he fulfilled the work God gave him to do, and he did it to the best of his ability. It's the same way I felt um, I used to, in that calling that I had as a church service missionary for Family Search. We taught at Roots Tech, and we taught a class called Light Keepers. The goal of Light Keepers was just to teach beginning family history to women so that they felt it was approachable and doable. And what was hard about Light Keepers is I couldn't control anything about what happened after they left, you know, they would stay and listen to the four missionaries for a few hours and we would help and train and teach. And then we just sent them on their way, you know, to different states all over the country. And I didn't get to know how it, how it went from there. But what I loved is all four of us, both individually and I think collectively as a, as a partnership of the four of us, we felt fulfilled. Like we had done everything we were supposed to do. We can't control the outcome. We don't, we don't, we don't take the ball from this point forward. Our job was just to do this piece. And if we'd done it well, we could feel fulfilled. We felt literal joy because of those moments of, yes, we had done, not perfectly, but we'd done everything we were asked to do. And there's joy in that. And I think that's what John is testifying of. He has a fullness of joy because he fulfilled the work God gave him to do. And so he testifies about that. And he testifies, testifies about the Savior. Um, and then he teaches us something important about the Savior in 34. Especially if you go into the JST, you learn that the spirit that Jesus carries at this point is a fullness of God. So at this point in his ministry, even though it's the very beginning of his ministry, he, he has all he needs spiritually from God the Father. He has not in a step-by-step manner in, anymore. This is He has a fullness of the spirit and he's going to use it for the rest of his ministry. And so he testifies. The same plan of salvation verse that you heard from the Savior to Nicodemus happens in 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Wrath of God just means a, a abhorrence, a separation that has to occur, because God can't be around wickedness. And so he's basically saying to him, like, there, this only ends one way. Either you choose to follow Jesus Christ, or you are turning against God. So don't worry about where I stand in the middle, follow Christ. And isn't that what we're all supposed to do in our callings, in our roles as parents and teachers? My job is to nurture and cultivate and shield these little plants that the Lord has given me until they're old enough to take that shield off and have their own exposure to the sun and to the elements and to the trials and the adversities of the world. I'm supposed to help them get rich roots. I'm not supposed to take them to be a full plant. And they're not supposed to be a giant oak tree under my watch. That will happen, but it will mostly be because of what they experience on their own. My job is to get them to Christ and help them understand that he's the one to follow. If you've ever taught, I hate to pinpoint teenagers, but this tends to happen with teenagers. If you ever taught your own teenager or someone else's teenager and had them bristle back at you, um, even with repeated attempts to like love them and care for them and teach them. And they just, it's almost like, a, you know, a spike comes out of them. That's sort of what I see when I read the woman at the well, not because she is bad. I, I don't think it's the same way. I don't think that teenager is bad. I think it means she's wounded. Um, I think it's the same reason you see animals like shoot out spikes at people they think are predators. There, there is a there is a, a vulnerability that they feel and their initial reaction when they've been wounded in the past is to bristle and to put out a very firm shell to try and guard their heart against getting wounded again. 
And that's kind of how I see this sweet woman. I, I also see her as a very interesting foil to Nicodemus. So their stories are placed side by side by John on purpose, I think. You know, Nicodemus happens at night. The woman in Samaria happens in the middle of the day. He is someone who is seen as very powerful and strong in his world. And she is seen as someone who is probably even considered wicked or unclean, at the least, in her world. There's a whole bunch of comparisons. If you go in the notes, you can see some more. Some pivotal ones that we don't often talk about is Nicodemus had seen or at least heard of miracles of the Savior. As far as I know, the woman at the well has not. She has no experience with this man who asks her for a drink. Um, she, When Nicodemus comes, he asks questions of the Lord and seems to almost struggle the more answers he gets. With the woman at the well, she doesn't ask questions. He actually almost approaches her saying like, I want to teach you. And she resists. She's that prickly teenager. And it's just this interesting comparison. But one of the things I really loved about her story is you see her put up so many barriers. In fact, I kind of numbered them in my margins. I don't, maybe I didn't catch them all. You always might find some, but I, I see her putting up barriers, almost like she is anticipating getting her heart hurt and she doesn't want it. And so she puts up these barriers to say, we're not the same. You don't actually love me. You know, it's this, you'll see it as you go in the verses. So at first, I think he teaches us something about how to deal with those who are prickly <laughs> in three. He had a choice not to go through Samaria at all. In fact, most Jews didn't. Samaria is wedged between, remember he's up here. If you look at your map that we printed out, Galilee is up here, up north on the Sea of Galilee. And then if you look in the middle between Galilee and where Jerusalem is in Judah, you have this big area called Samaria. <laughs> so most Jews would travel along the coastline to avoid going into the heart of Samaria because there is some bitter feelings between these two groups of people. In fact, I was reading my Book of Mormon study this morning about, where was I? It's like Mosiah 10, I think. And it talks about the hatred that the Lamanites had for the Nephites based on all these false assumptions, right? Based on all these false traditions of that Nephi was tricky, that he kept the valuable things from Lehi for himself, that he forced people across the waters, like all these basically lies that they had passed down from generation to generation became this vehement hatred. That's sort of what happens with Samaritans and the Jews. So they descend from the same basic place, but they, there is, they basically see them as a mix of breeds because they are kind of the Jews that were left behind ended up getting mixed in with the Babylonians and even the Assyrians at times. And so they see him, they see them as like these mixed, not pure line people. And the Jews saw themselves as pure descendants of Abraham. And so that's what caused contention. Also because the Jews demolished their temple. So about a hundred years before this, the Samaritans built a temple of sorts on their area and the Jews came and destroyed it in a hope of getting the Samaritans to come and worship at the true temple, and it caused a lot of contention. So the, all that history is there. So she has a lot of reason to be prickly, um, and she it's just interesting to see how Jesus deals with it. I think it's really instructive. So first, he chooses to go where she is. He didn't have to. He chose to go through Samaria. And they're at this very interesting place. So they're near Jacob's well. What's cool about this, you guys... Is Jacob's well is, do you remember that part in the Old Testament where we were studying about Jacob and Esau and how Jacob was trying to come to reconcile with Esau? This is when they're much older and they go, he comes to that land in the hopes with all these gifts. You remember, like it was an amazing amount of gifts and he's so afraid that Esau is going to be so angry that he will slaughter his family or that there will be this bloodshed that happens. And what happens instead is this incredible moment of reconciliation where these brothers who have spent their whole lifetimes apart, assuming that they hated each other, 
come together. They soften in that moment. Esau, where he could have treated Jacob with hostility and even violence, embraces him. It was one of my favorite parts of the whole Old Testament, you guys. That's what you're, That's where they are. This is the land where they're standing. This is a place of reconciliation, which is, I think, exactly why the Savior came through Samaria, because he's trying to say to this woman of Samaria, you are of me. I am of you. We belong together. Our people need to reconcile. And there has to be healing that happens. So he he comes to her at this very specific well. And she, he asks, give me to drink. I actually think there's really helpful instruction there too. Because I think what the Savior is saying is one way to start warmth in a friendship that has been cold for a long time is to ask for help. Often we come trying to offer help or trying to offer gifts of peace or whatever. And sometimes the best way to close gaps is to say, I actually need something from you. Could you help me? And that that plead for help softens. And her response is prickly. So at nine, she says, how is it that thou being a Jew askest of me, which of a woman of Samaria have no dealing with the Samaritans? You guys don't normally deal with me. She's, she's putting up barriers. She's saying, I think she instantly feels something when the Savior is around her. But she, by default, throws up barriers because she doesn't want to feel something. You know, the same way if you've been wounded in the past, your natural reaction to a new relationship is to like put on the brakes. In fact, you almost put up stumbling blocks to prevent it from happening. And that's kind of what's happening here. She's saying, here's a few reasons we don't get along. I'm a woman. You shouldn't be talking to me. I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. And the Savior says, like he just almost brushes right past it. He says, if you knew who I was, I could give you living water. You know, he comes asking her for water and she says, you don't have anything to draw with. You know, normally they would have this leather pouch that they would lower into this super deep well, like 100, 150 feet well. And they'd have to draw it up in the leather pouch and then pour that into whatever they use to carry back home. And she's saying like, you don't have anything. And he says, I have living water. And remember we learned in the Old Testament that living water means it's not stagnant. So it's not sitting in a well, it's springing up. It's constantly flowing and being clean and you know it's different and he, that's what he's promising her and she basically throws up another barrier so in 12 you see here art thou greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well I think she, what she's trying to say there is like remember we don't get along like remember we have hostility between our peoples we can't be friends no matter how loving your voice sounds and what I feel right now I can't you know like there's a there's an immediate distance. So she tries to remind him of that. He just doesn't take the bait. So what he says to her is, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He doesn't, he doesn't take her response. He doesn't internalize it. He simply just testifies of what is true, that the water he's offering is living water. It will, it will bubble to the surface for her always if she will partake of it. He's not discounting what Jacob did. Jacob dug a well that saved the lives of all of his posterity by giving them this source of water. He's saying, I am that plus eternity. I am what Jacob did for you plus eternity because I'm giving you water that will never run dry. This well, even if you drink it, you'll, you'll be thirsty again. I'm giving you something that lasts. And she, you can see the spirit working on her, but her woundedness and her history is causing her to like continue to throw out resistance, even though I think she wants to come. So she says in 15, the woman saith unto him, sir, give me this water that I may thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So she's kind of 
getting to that point where in the conversation, she's like, okay, prove it, prove that you can do this thing. I think she feels his love for her and she's, she doesn't understand it. And he does this really interesting thing, you guys. So his next couple verses are about her husband. So I think he knows that she's got this side of her, um, this problem that she has where she's had five husbands and is living with someone right now who's not her husband. She probably is constantly thinking about how unworthy she is to be, even if this man is a prophet or is a Christ, she shouldn't be, he shouldn't be talking to her because she's got more story and more sin than he understands. But because God perceives things, Jesus can perceive her heart. He, he steps in softly and asks her these questions. Tell me about your husband. Go get your husband. What I love is her response. She says, I don't have a husband. In fact, and he says, you've done well. Like, I think in that moment, she probably thought he would turn away from her because I bet people in her community or people in her history, when they learn about her story, do. You know, it, it was against the love of Moses to have more than three husbands. So to have five, whether you're a Samaritan or a Jew, I think was pushed away. So she is assuming, I think, that he will pull back. And instead of pulling back, he compliments her on her honesty. And he tells her, you've said well. And he, then he tells her her story. I know you've had five husbands. And then she sees him as a prophet but still feels, I think, unworthy to be in his presence. Even if he is a man of God, that's even more reason why she feels like, if you really knew me, you wouldn't want to be right here. So she throws out another barrier. So in 20, she says, um, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and ye say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's basically saying like, we have this history where you told us that we can't even worship in Jerusalem because we're not of you. I can't go to the holy temple. We built a temple, but you crushed it. There is this barrier between us. And he softens it by saying, you don't understand. Pretty soon the Jews also won't have a place to worship. The temple is going to get destroyed. And it doesn't matter because it's about where, you, it's about who you worship, not where you worship. So he's trying to like, you know, he's like, keep throwing. It's almost the same you know, when we talked about the adversary going against Jesus and he has this samurai sword of to slice through things, I think he can use that same sort of truth to slice through all of the lies we've told ourselves about why we don't belong, why we don't fit in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or why we think we have gone too far off. He slices through those with this beautiful sword of truth. He teaches her doctrine and all of her insecurities and all of her wounds fall away. And she starts to see. And then it just gets more beautiful in 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. So he's, not only is he complimenting on her, on her honesty and telling her that all those reasons you think we don't belong together are wrong. He's saying, God the Father wants you. He wants worshipers like you. He doesn't want worshipers like the Pharisees, and he doesn't want worshipers like the Jews who've been cruel to you or your own Samaritan people who've been cruel to you. He wants you as you are. Come, come right now as you are and step up to something higher. And so she starts to catch it. He teaches her about the Spirit in 24, and then in 25, the woman saith unto him, I know that a Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and when he is come, he will tell us all things. I think she feels something, and this is her last barrier. She basically says, I've already heard that there's someone coming. There's probably an easier road than me forgiving you. You know, for, him, for her to come to Jesus in this moment means she has to trust, trust in a Jew. In fact, he even says that in 22. He says, salvation is of the Jews, meaning if you're going to participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to be able to come to me and I'm a Jew. I'm of the Jews. You have to reconcile. And so he's inviting her and she's kind of throwing out this last ditch effort of, 
yeah, but there's a Messiah who's going to come and maybe that's an easier road. Maybe I should wait till he comes. And so then his classic response in 26, Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. He's taken away every single barrier she's thrown up. He's stayed with her, even though she's prickly and hard. He's taught her with clear doctrine so that he knows, so that she knows how much he loves her, not just for like how much he loves her in this moment. I think when as a parent or a teacher of a teenager who is hard, you can honestly testify that you love them in this moment and you love them too much to leave them how they are in this moment. There's power there. And that's what happens. She changes. The Holy Ghost is at work on her heart and she changes. And the results of her change are amazing. And you're going to see those in the next couple of chapters or in the next part of this chapter. In that moment, the disciples, the students of Jesus see him interacting with this woman of Samaria. And I love in 27, it says, but no man said like, why are you talking to her? I think they're learning, right? They're understanding this is how Jesus teaches and they need, they need to learn. And I love what you see in 28. And the woman then left her water pot and went her way to the city and saith to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? There is one, I love that she leaves her water pot. I don't know if that's significant, but it, to me, it seems like Peter letting down his nets. It's setting them down and never to come back again. This, this part of her day at least is done and she has something better to do. So she rushes into her town. What's interesting to me is if she really was someone who was cast aside in her town for her adultery or for her many weddings in the past, many marriages, it's surprising to me that people would believe her so much. You know, I, I don't get it. <laughs> in fact, I didn't get it until I listened to Sister Porter's talk. So she gave a talk. I can't remember if it was this conference or the last one. It's in the notes, but the woman at the well. And she talks about what she learned from the woman at the well. And one of the things I love that Sister Porter taught was that the power is in her. It doesn't matter what her history is. It doesn't matter where her circumstances are or what she looks like. It None of that matters. When she is converted to Christ and speaks it, hearts change. Her countenance must have changed. Something about her fundamentally was so infectious that people couldn't resist wanting to know for themselves. In fact, that's what happens. If you look in like 39, you can see that the whole city believes she is someone who lights a fire in her city and everyone turns. You guys, I found myself thinking like, they didn't see any miracles. They didn't see a man lowered down through a roof with palsy, stand up and walk. They didn't see a leper get healed. They saw no miracles. And then the Spirit taught me very quickly <laughs> that I was wrong, that they saw the most incredible miracle happen. They saw a countenance change. They saw something that should have taken years and years. In fact, in her circumstances, she never could have changed in their culture. She was always going to be cast aside with this history. And in this moment, she saw they saw her change. I think it's the same thing sometimes you see when someone fully repents and comes to Christ. It happens so rapidly and the change is so bright, radiant even. You know, you can see a change in someone's heart and countenance and it is infectious and it causes the whole town to come and to want to know for themselves. In the middle of that though is where you see these verses in the 30s. So this is one of my favorite parts of this um, part of the chapter. It says, the apostles who were out trying to find food come to the Savior, offer him food, and he basically says, I'm full. And they're like, well, how are you full? You know, they, they also have their own spiritual autism. They're still learning how to see bigger. And he talks about how he's full because he finished this work. So in 34, Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He is so 
full of the spirit and of this, you know, he got to see that countenance change in her. He got to see her run jubilantly back to her little village. He got to see a whole trajectory of a life change and he feels full. And I feel like that's what he was trying to teach to Peter when he said, you'll be fishers of men. What he was saying is, you don't understand. Like these moments, even if you bring one soul back to Christ, the rejoicing that will happen will fill you more than hundreds upon hundreds of fish. You, this is meat that lasts. This is living water. So I love that piece. In fact, what he says to his disciples is he says, look up. So on 35, there are yet four months left and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes. Almost as if they were saying like, oh, but it's not harvest time yet. We can't harvest anything. And he's like, look up. The harvest is now. The field is white, for they are white and ready to harvest. He's like, you've been focused on the Jews. You've been focused on even just Galilee. When I teach you how to be the men I need you to be, you will be surrounded by fields that are white. It's how I think we're supposed to see every one of our callings and opportunities to serve in the church. Because you're going to have times, I have times, where I wonder if there's anybody left to teach, (laughs) you know, or like, did I fail completely because nobody showed up? And what he's saying is there's always people to teach. So if my numbers at YSA start getting really low, my job is to go out into the wards and say, hey, bishops, who, who do you have? Who can I reach? Who can I talk to? You're supposed to look until you see the white field. Keep going until you see where he will put you because the field is always white, you guys. So that's what he teaches his disciples in this moment. I do love what happens with the village. So in 42, this is, I think is a really pivotal verse says, and said unto the woman, now we believe this is the people of her town in Samaria, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Her testimony lit a fire in them, but it didn't fill them. You know, it's the same thing we learned from Elder Holland, that you should see your students and your kids as not cups to be filled, but fires to be ignited. They are ignited and they have their own witness. Not because they saw a miracle of the flesh, but because they saw a miracle of a countenance change and a whole life pivot for good. And it's irresistible. You just love it. So that takes you to the end of their story, but there's a little bit more at the very end of John 4 that you don't want to miss. Sometimes I wonder if those two days in Samaria looked a little bit like what we see in the Book of Mormon, because the people just ache for him to stay. You know, he, they just are at the beginning of their testimonies and they're starting to see and they want him to stay. So he does. For two days, he stays and he teaches and they all believe the whole village comes around. And I think it's remarkable that he doesn't continue to stay. You know, sometimes as a parent or the teacher, there, when you have a, a captive group like that, they want to be in class. They're eagerly soaking up all the goodness of the doctrine that you're trying to teach them and they're getting it. And it's like, so, so good is hard to then step away. The same way I think it's hard for missionaries out in the field when they are teaching and they're in an area that's thriving and it's going so well and then they get transferred because the field is white all over you guys. And so he doesn't want you to stay even when it's good. He, I think he wanted to get them on the covenant path. He's going to bless them with teaching and understanding and he's going to send apostles to keep an eye on them. But he knows his job is to teach everywhere that the father has sent him. So he can't stay. So I just think there's something sweet in that. If you have trouble letting go of your callings, or if you have trouble in any of those ways, understand that the Savior gets that, and there's goodness. The field is white all over. So trust. 
In fact, one of the reasons we know the fields are white is because of what happens with the nobleman's son. So en route, as he's going back to Galilee, as soon as someone hears and the word spreads that he's back in Galilee and not in Samaria, a nobleman who needs his help rushes to him. So you can see in the verses, there's uh, his son is sick in 46. In fact, he's to the point of death is what you learn at 47. And so this nobleman rushes 25 miles to find the Savior. And 25 miles is a long way. You know, you can go on your map and see that's a ways to cross. Uh, and if his son is at the point of death, it makes you wonder why he made the journey at all. Like he must have wondered if it was even going to be worth it. I don't know how many hours that is walking or on horseback, but like that's a ways. And so he clearly must have had enough belief to fuel that ride, to get to where the Savior was. And this is the Savior's response to him. It's in 48. And Jesus said unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. I used to read this verse and think the Lord was kind of condemning his lack of faith. And I guess maybe he is in some way, but it doesn't seem like the Savior's character. I didn't really understand this until this week when I was thinking about Thomas. So this similar thing happens with Thomas. When the Savior is resurrected and the other apostles encounter the Savior, then they tell Thomas, we saw the Savior. He lives. We touched him. We saw him. And Thomas basically says, unless I see it for myself, I just can't believe. And I think what's really powerful is that in that moment, the Savior does show himself to Thomas. He doesn't get offended at Thomas's lack of faith. The same way he wasn't offended when Peter started to sink in the water, he reaches out his hand and he says, okay, if this is what you need, I'm going to give you help. He lifts Peter in the water. He lets Thomas see him. And in this moment, he lets this man have his miracle. Because guys, we worship a fleece-giving God. Remember when I told you about how Michael Wilcox taught me that about Gideon? So Gideon in the Old Testament who had to go into battle and he needed some signs. And so he put his fleece out and sometimes it was dry and sometimes it was wet. And it was a way he could know for sure that God had a plan for him and that this was going to succeed. We worship a fleece-giving God, you guys. When you need a sign, a clear one, and you're intending to do something good, and your whole testimony isn't teetering on this one sign, I think he helps. It's the same reason I get answers to prayers sometimes. Because he knows, like, Maria, I don't think you're going to move forward unless I tell you this. So I'm going to tell you this. I just think it's, it's his character. He won't do it always because we need to build faith. In fact, I found that the older and more mature in my faith I get, the less and less he gives me signs <laughs> because he trusts that I know. Anyway, so I think you see that in this answer. The other thing I think you see is that God or that Jesus can heal from a distance. This is really powerful to me because he's 25 miles away from the sun. And what you see play out in the verses is Jesus says to him in the verse, that his son is healed. So in 50, he says, Jesus saith unto him, go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Jesus proclaims his son healed. And what the nobleman finds out as he gets his way back home and the servants rush out to tell him is in the very hour when Jesus proclaimed it, his son was healed. Here's what I love about that promise. I think all of us as parents and as teachers are continually praying for our kids at a distance. Uh, I think we're hoping that our kids who are not right under our care all the time will have encounters with God so that they will know for themselves. I think this promises that that can happen. The Book of Mormon promises that too. When you see Alma the elder and, and King Mosiah praying for their sons, and then the angel comes and stops Alma the younger and the sons of Mosiah, and you know, like you can see that the prayers of the fathers helped. What's hard about the Book of Mormon one is 
they're kind of perfect, you know? Like Alma Sr. is a prophet. These are really good guys. And what I love about this one is this is an imperfect father with imperfect faith who says, my son needs you. He's not here. He's way, way over here. Can you reach him? And what the promise is, is yeah, yeah, he can reach him. He can reach someone 25 miles away. He can reach someone way off the covenant path, way off. Um, because his power isn't limited by mortal constraints. He can reach anyone we pray for. So I think as my prayers are, as I'm learning about prayer, I'm learning that I should ask for miracles that seem impossibly far away. Because Jesus has the power to heal time and space and over great distances. And isn't that such a comfort? That's how this chapter ends. Welcome back, you guys. This is the creative side of week six. So I know John can be a bit intimidating to study. And my hope here is that if you can use these object lessons, you'll be able to teach those principles of John in ways that are easy to digest for your kids and hopefully just kind of ignite in them a desire to dive a little bit deeper. So let me show you what I've got in store. I'll do a quick preview of all three object lessons for you here. And then for those of you in the course, we'll, we'll take things a lot farther coming up next. So the first one is about miracles. The first official miracle of the Savior's ministry happens this week in the book of John. This is when he converts water to wine. And although we are going to study that miracle, I wanted to take things a little bit broader and teach about miracles in general why they're such an important part of his ministry, why they still happen today, what power creates them, and what they are not. And we're going to do all of that with a simple printable. So in the course this week, you'll find this printable that converts from watercolor to wine color in one quick cut, and I'll show you how to pull it off. It's a pretty cool one. The second one, I don't have anything to hold up, but we're talking about cleansing the temple and why that had to happen. And we're going to compare it, you know, the, the prophets teach that the home is the only thing that compares in holiness to the temple. So I thought since it's the beginning of spring, at least I hope it's the beginning of spring, that we will have a chance to clean our own homes in a deeper way. That we will take some nook or cranny of our house that is frustrating to us or that impedes us somehow. And as a family, we will tackle it. Or if you're in a classroom, they might tackle their backpack or their desk or whatever it is that they have in front of them and talk about how that feeling of open space creates opportunities for the spirit to be. So it's a spring cleaning challenge here in the course. And I'll walk you through how to pull that off in just a minute. The third one is my favorite. <laughs> this is, it takes a little, little more time, but I think it packs a punch. Okay, so for this one, I really love the way the Savior teaches both Nicodemus and the woman at the well about the Spirit. He doesn't necessarily use very clear words, because remember, this is the book of John, but I do think what he's trying to help them understand is they are feeling something that they know is good. They just don't know what it is that they're feeling. So he's trying to identify. It's missionary week on the chart this week. So my goal here is to help your kids and my kids become better missionaries before they ever put on a name tag. And I think a big part of that is to help people recognize the spirit when they feel it and help them understand how to get it more often. And the way we're going to do it is to make a wave. So you are going to create this. I can't even hold it up, you guys. It's that big. It's a gumdrop wave that will help your kids see something They'll see a pattern and a beauty and not necessarily be able to identify why it happens. They'll just recognize it. And we're going to compare that to the spirit. So this one for your supplies, you just need a pack of skewers. I think I use like 
30 or so skewers. And then you need one box of dots. Jason loves dots, so these were easy for me to come by. But if you've never bought this disgusting candy, you can find it at almost any gas station or anywhere. Just buy one box, maybe two, if you happen, if you want to have a, a little bit longer of a wave, but one box will get you through. The other thing you're going to need is some kind of tape. Um, I really liked using packing tape because it was clear so you could see what was happening on the skewers a little better, but you could use duct tape or any kind of thick inch or two of tape will do just fine. But okay, that's your supplies list. Now for those of you in the course, let's go a whole lot deeper. Thank you so much for being here, you guys. That's the end of week six. I hope you enjoy this week of John. I know he's a little richer, but I promise that's a good thing, especially with all the foundation you've built so far in the New Testament. You're going to love what you find in John. So get into your scriptures early if you can. If you want a little help to kickstart your enthusiasm, come join me on the live. That's Mondays at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. I pop on Instagram. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll get an alert that says Mech Mom Life is going live and you just click accept and you can join in on the conversation. So you can listen to some of the insights I didn't have time to fit in here or ask questions or add thoughts um, about how this doctrine is reaching you. If you have personal questions and you're in the course, you can also leave me a question on the discussion boards. If you ever have a glitch on a video or a printable is not working, that's a good spot to put your questions. Um, and then also I would remind you about the YouTube videos and the podcast. So the insights portion of this course is freely available to anyone who wants it. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it in the Creative Come Follow Me podcast. But if you're in the course and you want access to the podcast version of the creative side of the course, then just message me and I'll send you your private link. So that way, as you're shopping or on your way to work, you can get an idea of what you're going to teach and how you're going to teach it. So that way, hopefully by the time you actually go to teach it, you've got a little more background. <laughs> you have a little more chance to understand it, to prep for it, and to get yourself geared up to teach this beautiful doctrine. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, you guys, enjoy this week in John, and I will see you on Monday. <laughs>